Good morning, everybody, and well, good afternoon with our new start time at noon today. Um, I hope you're all well and had an excellent summer. SRACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people in the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3, and we would pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationships to the land. Um, today, we're very happy to have with us uh, Danielle Larive on the topic of is the contract dispute between AHS and Alberta nurses strictly about money? Danielle Larive has been a registered nurse for over 24 years and has worked in a variety of settings from the frontline public health to First Nations home care to teaching nursing and is currently the first Vice President of UNA, the union representing over 30,000 RNs, RPNs, and other frontline health workers. She proudly served as President of the UNA Local 315 until she was elected to the Alberta Legislature on May 5th in 2015, and went on to fill multiple cabinet posts, including Minister of Municipal Affairs, Service Alberta, Children's Service, and status of women. During her time in office, she managed many complicated and sensitive files, such as being Alberta's lead on the 2016 Fort McMurray wildfires, developing and implementing a plan to improve Alberta's child intervention system, and co-chairing the review of the province, province mental health system. Ms. Larive feels strongly that advocating at the political level is part of a nurse's responsibility and is thankful for the opportunity in her newest role to advocate for both Alberta's nurses and for a public, publicly funded, publicly delivered healthcare system. Thank you so much for joining us today and I very much look forward to your talk. Well, thank you very much, Annalise. Um, so good afternoon, everyone. I'm so thankful for the chance to have a chance to, to talk to you today. Um, of course, it would be better if we could all be uh, in, in the same room, but certainly as a registered nurse, I very much appreciate the fact that we are all social distancing and doing what we can uh, to, to help manage the, the spread of COVID, which continues to be a huge challenge for us, which I'll, ta I'll talk a little bit about more later. But, um, you know, I, I was thinking about what I wanted to say today uh, and, and what it really came down to to me, kind of the overarching theme was, what is a nurse worth? Um, because really, uh, that, that's what it seems to have come down to uh, for this government. And uh, certainly, I think I have a difference of opinion with them. Uh, I think a lot of Albertans do too. Um, and, uh, and it's definitely a topic worth exploring. So before I get into uh, a little more detail, I, I did just want to clarify who UNA is. So the United Nurses of Alberta uh, is the union, as Annalise said, uh, that represents registered nurses, registered psychiatric nurses, as well as some other allied health workers across the province. Uh, with more than, than 30,000 members, uh, we, we have a fairly strong voice uh, here in Alberta, and we're grateful for the opportunity to use it not just to advocate for nurses uh, and the nursing profession, but where our heart is, which is advocating for fair and efficient public health care system uh, within this province. Because when it comes down to it, nurses uh, very much are about caring for their patients, clients and residents um, far more uh, than they are about worrying about their compensation. But that, that's what we do as a union. They're, they're busy taking care of our friends, our families and us. Um, in many different settings across the province and the unions there to make sure uh, that they actually get some fair compensation while they're going to work uh, to do that. So with that, uh, let's move into talk a bit about what's been happening with bargaining between the province uh, and our members. So let's chat a little bit about how we got here, but also about uh, where we are now and where we go from here. So I'm not going to go through all of recent bargaining history or else we'd be done um, and wouldn't have any time left. Um, so I'll try to just go over some, some of the key moments in the last little while and then what's happened over the last couple of weeks. So um, our contract uh, actually expired in March of 2020. So we've been without a contract for over a year. Uh, we did start having um, 
bargaining conversation sooner than that. Uh, and it feels like a million years ago now. But if we think back, the context of that time uh, was the government uh, had enlisted um, some friends of theirs to do a blue ribbon panel to look at uh, how to reduce spending uh, in the province of Alberta. Of course, the members of the panel were uh, not allowed to consider revenue uh, at all. Um, they uh, were just looked to look at how to save money. Uh, and in their report, uh, as we were heading into bargaining, uh, there were many direct references attacking uh, the UNA contract. So, uh, you know, early, late in 2019, early 2020, it was pretty clear to us uh, that the government was prepared uh, to go to war with the members of, of UNA. So, so that's kind of how we started. Um, then, of course, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic uh, happened, and we actually ended up deferring meeting uh, between uh, the negotiating committee of AHS and our own uh, bargaining committee in UNA for many months during the pandemic. So we'd exchanged proposals. Wasn't a lot of movement. Uh, some pretty big differences between us. But then, surprise, surprise, on July 6th of this year, um, the AHS negotiating committee sat down with us and said they had been directed by the government to now propose a 3% salary rollback. Hmm. So this was the first time that we were seeing uh, directly, live and in color, uh, the impact of Bill 21 that passed in October of 2019. So I'm sure that that doesn't necessarily mean a lot to, to many of you these days, but that particular bill had a piece that allowed governments to impose their own mandate on negotiations between public sector unions uh, and government agencies. So they could secretly uh, order independent employer negotiations um, to actually not be uh, independent anymore, but, but be directed by the government. And not only could that happen, that could happen anywhere in the bargaining process. It could be before we started, it could be during, it could even be after the conclusion of negotiations. So, um, so it, it was quite interesting to sit across from AHS and have them say, we have been mandated to tell you. Um, and, uh, and, and it was uh, a pretty big hit when they proposed the 3% salary rollback. Um, so that was on July 6th. Uh, obviously, it was kind of a tumultuous summer. Our, our members, and, and thankfully, many of our supporters, I'm assuming some of you uh, are, are in that group, you know, were outraged by, by that proposal. Um, and then, so in response to that, uh, late in August, August 25th, we actually held a meeting of the presidents of uh, all the locals of UNA to talk about where we go from here. So they gave instruction to the bargaining committee to proceed as quickly as possible to negotiate a new provincial agreement, making it absolutely clear that the rollbacks being proposed, not only both, both in pay, but also um, other long established provisions in the collective agreement, which often were about patient safety, um, were not acceptable. So what was unique in this situation is that it is the first time uh, since the Notley government um, brought in essential services legislation um, that, that we've been in a, in, in a bargaining position. And so it is the first time in decades that nurses have had the ability for a legal strike. Um, so knowing that, the presidents told the bargaining committee um, to move forward closer toward the possibility of a legal strike uh, by applying for formal mediation uh, to the Alberta Labour Relations Code. Um, and uh, in order to facilitate that, um, one of the challenges with the uh, essential services agreements is every single unit in every single facility across the country has to kind of negotiate how many people are essential and how many aren't. So I think there was a lot of thought it was going to take many, many, many months or years or who knows forever um, to figure out those details. But what the president said was, you know what, we're withdrawing our proposals. We're just going to agree with everything the employer has to say, because that will mean we can apply for mediation right away. So I think it's fair to say 
neither AHS or the government saw that coming. I think they were thinking it was going to take many months um, and possibly years uh, to get there. And all of a sudden, we moved from from thinking of that to being at a point of formal mediation, uh, which which has timelines around it. Like at this point, the fact that we're applying for formal mediation means we're formally uh, in the process, slowly, step by step, of getting to a point where if the membership directs us to, uh, we could take a strike vote. So so after that happened, uh, just over the weekend, this past weekend, over Labor Day weekend, um, AHS negotiators contacted us saying they had a new mandate from the government, again, back to Bill 21, um, to amend their bargaining proposals um, before we commenced formal mediation. So they did, thankfully, drop several of the more offensive rollbacks AHS has, had been demanding. They took back the 3% uh, cut to the salary appendix. Um, they did, though, say still three years was of zeros. Uh, this following five years of zeros um, before this, um, as well as um, uh, as well as um, they they took back some reductions in shift differentials and. Um, and brought back some support in order to to get staff in on, on some of these stat holidays that are really difficult as well. However, they did still maintain a removal of um, lump sum payments we'd negotiated years ago, which work out to 2% of our salary. So that's still a 2% um, pay reduction um, that, that they're proposing, um, as well as um, taking away some important scheduling uh, provision protections for nurses, um, you know, to make sure they actually get to have a reasonable schedule, spend time with their family, and have a break now and again. Um, so three years uh, frozen, and then one percent in each of the final two years was was what they put on the table. So, you know, what we feel very strongly about is that, um, you know, they did take the most offensive proposals off the table, but this continuing effort to roll back nurses' pay, eliminating scheduling protections for us in a time when the system is under stress and healthcare workers are burnt out and exhausted is not going to help AHS solve its staffing problems, is likely going to make the situation worse, um, and especially in the context of a growing national and international nursing shortage. So where are we at now? Uh, tomorrow, we're gonna meet with the mediator um, and we hope, we hope, I mean, we legitimately hope that through the mediator, we can resolve the outstanding issues in a way that's fair to UNA members and will help the system ease the crisis uh, that we're experiencing right now. Um, everybody wants to get to an agreement. Um, certainly the provincial government has said they want to get to uh, an agreement. Uh, however, if we don't get to an agreement, this is an important step that allows the parties um, to exercise um, our strike, our strike rights for the first time in a very, very, very long time. Um, so uh, with that, um, let's chat a little bit about the staffing crisis that we find ourselves in. So I think the first thing I want to touch on is how nurses are feeling right now. They are feeling disrespected. They are feeling expendable, undervalued, and they are burnt out, they are exhausted, and they are overwhelmed. But I didn't necessarily just want you to have to take my word for that. So uh, Annalise, um, sorry, I haven't even been telling you to go through the slides, but I figured you figured it out. <laughs> um, I, I, I pulled a few things off of Twitter where different healthcare workers have shared their thoughts around what's happening um, in terms of impact on the system uh, and how they're feeling. So, uh, you know, I have a couple of texts here um, that were actually sent to Dr. Joe Vipond. I don't know if anybody's been following the Protect Our Province group and Dr. Joe Vipond and friends and the work they're doing in trying to uh, to challenge this government to do better and to do more uh, throughout the pandemic. But, you know, uh, because of the work and his visibility, a lot of people have reached out to him. So there's a couple of messages here. We have a public health nurse um, who is talking about the fact that there are nurses who have worked in uh, the NICU previously, so the neonatal intensive care unit, and they've been pulled to help with the ICU surge. 
So here they are working in public health for years. They've no recent training at all. And all of a sudden they're supposed to be uh, working in the ICU. And I hear stories like this all the time, that the province will talk on TV all they want about adding beds and having capacity, but that capacity needs staffing. Uh, and what we're seeing is they're being staffed by healthcare professionals who feel that they're filling a quota and don't necessarily have the current skills and knowledge uh, to, to provide that care. And so that's, that's very concerning, not only to me, but, but across the spectrum in that um, the fact that we're exceeding our normal capacity means they're, they're pulling resources from wherever they can. Uh, and that's not ideal for the nurses and it definitely is not ideal for patient care uh, either. Um, and of course, there's another um, uh, another e text there that talks about the fact that you know more and more patients being crammed into units that they that far more people than they were designed for. Uh, you know, certainly stories previously of the ICUs double bunking, having two people in a room that was designed for you know a single critical care patient uh, being far less than ideal, um, and 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 expressing that it, they feel demoralized, frustrated, uh, and burned out, and the fact that it's just going to be um, getting worse. Um, and so, I mean, we can flip through these, you know, see the story of a nurse talking about being broken, raw, burnt out, suffering from PTSD. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's very devastating. I, I've talked to a few folks about feeling that I have vicarious trauma. I'm not working on the front lines right now, but these are the stories I get every single day. And it's, uh, it's awful to see the legitimate suffering uh, of our frontline caregivers who are sacrificing their physical and mental health and well-being uh, in order to be there for us uh, and our friends and our family. Um, another nurse talking about being scared of what level of hell she's walking into before every shift, not knowing how many codes there's going to be at night, and being tired of watching people die, which is absolutely heartbreaking. It didn't have to be this way. It shouldn't have been this way, and we need to do better. Uh, my friend Katie talking about actually crying during her shift, and not just her, her colleague um, bursting into tears because they didn't even get a single break. They go into that shift and it's just running from one crisis to another uh, without a break. And, and it really isn't sustainable. Uh, they can't take it. And then a nurse speaking on behalf of, of all nurses, full on in capitals, help us. We can't help all the sick people. We have no staff, dozens in waiting rooms. We want to help, but we're scared and tired. Help. Uh, these kind of pleas are absolutely heartbreaking and expression of what we're seeing um, right now. So I don't necessarily need to read every single one of these. You can um, see them on the screen as, uh, as Annalise uh, flips through them. It's, uh, it's just an indication of the fact that um, that we're really in a very acute nursing shortage. Uh, if I, I'm, I'm not working frontline right now, I'm on leave, but if I wanted a different nursing position right now and I logged into the AHS website, I could literally scroll for hours through positions. The like thousands of healthcare worker vacancies across the province that they cannot fill. Um, and so it's, uh, it's really difficult to see the increasing demand and pressure of COVID uh, on the healthcare system and just knowing that there's not more bodies to fill those positions. And, and the people who are there are really approaching the point of, of being done and not even being able um, to be present. So it's really uh, a very tough time. So, so that's the context of bargaining and what's happening with COVID and the fact that we are in an acute crisis in terms of, of a nursing shortage in the province. So putting that all together brings us to that initial conversation or question of what is a nurse worth? And so again, going back to the blue ribbon panel and, and the idea that government and, and their um, the people who ran the panel felt that nurses should be paid less than they are now. Uh, so recently, uh, Vivian Krause, I'm, I'm sure we all might know who she is by this point uh, in time, uh, posted a poll on Twitter. And I'm pretty sure I know what she thought the outcome was going to be. But she did a poll and said, you know, here's the average age of nurses per hour. So here's Alberta making more than anybody else uh, in the country. So now, do you think Albertans should get a, wa a wage rollback or not? 
uh, I was so thankful to the um, uh, almost 15,000 respondents. So it was not a small sampling. This clearly was uh, was a really strong response um, of Albertans who responded that absolutely not. 83 83%. And said no. Um, I uh, I I have three kids, 22, 19, and 12. And so I pulled my 19-year-old to the side, and I said, "Hey, Keith, check this poll out." And he looked at it, and he, without even knowing any of this context. And honestly, I don't I don't even talk to my kids about work. I'm sick of talking about it all the other time. We don't talk about it at the dinner table. So I said to him, "Check this out," and he said, "Well, Mom." We live in Alberta, and everybody in Alberta makes more money than other provinces. So, if you compare the fact that nurse, uh, if you, if you compare what nurses make to other provinces, and consider what other people make in other provinces, I actually think that nurses are underpaid. So clearly, he takes after his mom, but also clearly the message is out there, thankfully, because. They really wanted to set the narrative that we should make the same uh, as everybody else. But, um, you know, it's completely bonkers to think that, you know, uh, everybody else comes to Alberta to make more money than they do in other provinces. It's it's what it's why many people chose to move to Alberta in the first place. But public sector workers somehow should be paid uh, the same as other provinces. So um, so so that's the narrative the government put in place. Uh, and that's certainly what we've what we've had to um, push back against. I, I think the other important thing to talk about is comparisons to other professions and trades. Uh, and I find it uh, incredibly interesting that in this conversation um, about how much nurses should make, we, there's absolute silence around what firefighters should make, around what police should make. Hmm. Also, public sector workers paid uh, uh, paid out of the public sector, um, but clearly roles that are predominantly filled by men. Um, and that's an important part of the conversation is typically, um, you know, nurses are understood to be female, but also to be a caring professional. And there continues to be uh, a narrative that somehow because we care, uh, we should want to take care of our patients and do it for um, for far less um, than, than I would uh, extend and say than is deserved. After all, um, nurses do care uh, and they are passionate about the work they do. But the way that they become nurses is by coming, becoming degree prepared uh, and spending an awful lot of time and commitment to becoming uh, professionals. Um, and so, you know, if we want to compare it to other trade or to trades and, and other professions, um, then I definitely would say um, that nurses in many ways probably still uh, fall short and is uh, very much an extension of the systemic uh, misogyny that, that exists and sexism that exists uh, continually still uh, within our culture. So even looking at it at a more theoretical level and how do we compare we come down to a very pragmatic conversation at this moment in time based on those messages that I just shared. And that's to say that we are talking about how much a nurse is worth at a time when we are in an acute nursing shortage. And uh, I would say that, that this government would be the first to talk about supply and demand when it comes to some things, but um, for some reason they've been hesitant to talk about it when, when it comes to nurses, but it's gonna be the reality uh, very shortly. And what we're hearing about, like I, I alluded to earlier, is uh, definitely a national shortage. All of my colleagues across um, the, the country are, are struggling with many of the same issues. Um, but across the US and in fact globally, uh, there is a nursing shortage. Uh, certainly reading about incentives from Ontario as high as $75,000 as a signing bonus, uh, trying to, to get nurses to come. Um, very soon, uh, based on contract changes in BC and Saskatchewan, so our two neighbours um, are going to be making more than us because of contract changes. Um, so a bit of a concern that our nearest neighbours, where people might choose to move to, uh, are going to be paid more at this point. Um, and I've heard uh, in the US places that would pay incentives as or would pay as much as uh, ten to twelve thousand dollars a week. 
uh, for nurses um, to to work for them. Um, so at this point in time, it's definitely not all about the money, but sometimes, especially when you're feeling devalued and demoralized and expendable uh, and replaceable, um, then, then it does come to that. And so if we are going to have a very real conversation uh, about retaining the nurses who are here in this province uh, and about recruiting other people to come and help fill uh, all the gaps and deficits that we have uh, in this province, then uh, we need to really talk about the fact that what is on the table right now contributes in a very negative way um, to ensuring that we all have the nurses that we need in our communities to provide the care that we all need uh, for us and for our friends, for our families and for our community members. And so, um, in fact, actually, I was I, I was reading an article this morning, uh, and it was out of the U.S. And it was doctors joking about the fact that they were going to quit being a doctor and like become a nurse because the incentives are so high in the U.S. Um, that uh, that they thought the pay might be worth it. <laughs> of course, I would have to say that uh, I'm not sure they're actually prepared to do the work, and they'd have to do additional training because I hate to break it to them. But being a doctor doesn't necessarily uh, mean you have the skill set to be a nurse. So. Um, so a lot of challenges there, but it's pretty entertaining. Uh, pretty entertaining to read that uh, that that's one of the conversations uh, going around in the shortage uh, in the U.S. So you know the initial proposal around this talk was to talk a bit about is it all about the money? And so you know up until now I've talked um, a bit about both uh, about the money, but it's not. It, it really isn't. Um, what it comes down to is. What nurses have typically been willing to go on strike for is when they truly felt moral distress and the inability to provide the care that they need to care, uh, that, that they need uh, to be able to do in order to provide the highest quality care for the people they take care of. And the current crisis that we're in uh, is, is absolutely um, a huge issue for nurses across this province. They really need um, to ensure that they have colleagues with them. Uh, you know, we have nurses who are um, regularly working 16 hours a day. Um, I heard of a nurse uh, recently in my community of Slave Lake uh, who worked uh, 14 12-hour shifts uh, in a row, um, which is absolutely uh, insane when you consider the kind of care that you have to provide uh, as a nurse and, and the critical thinking and attention that's required uh, in order to do that. And I think we can all agree that the kind of things that are happening right now with nurses working short, nurses being mandated to do overtime, being denied team, uh, time off, um, brings them to a point of burnout, is impacting their mental health, their capacity to provide high quality care. And they feel hopeless uh, in many ways in the sense of it being any better uh, anytime soon. And that is the crux of the matter, that we need to make sure that there's enough nurses, we need to make sure that nurses feel valued uh, and they feel respected uh, in order to ensure that they continue to remain within the workforce here uh, in Alberta um, and that uh, they continue to feel um, committed as professionals um, to, to doing that work and that we can continue to be understood as a place that nurses want to come to instead of a nurse, uh, instead of a place uh, that nurses want uh, to flee from. So that is where I'm at. <laughs> Thank so, you very much for, uh, for, for listening to me and I'm really excited to, to answer your questions uh, as well. Thank you so much for that talk. And uh, personally, I'd love to see any doctor take on the role of a nurse for just an hour and wait, wait to see what happens. Um, I will go right to our questions and start off with Colleen Quintel. Has a full compensation and then in brackets benefit slash pension slash shift diff ever being done between provinces. I've heard that provinces like Saskatchewan have a much better deal. Simple wages doesn't show the whole picture. Yeah, um, thanks for that question. Um, certainly we do um, regularly um, as the, the Canadian Federation of Nurses Union. So um, certainly I represent um, or 
I provide leadership within UNA, um, but there's also, we're a member of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Union and all of us, uh, all of our members on a regular basis sort of compare our compensation packages and, and all the various pieces. And um, um, the, in general, in a broad sense, um, Alberta typically comes out pretty well, um, but again, uh, well, we should when uh, the average worker in Alberta makes uh, 12%-ish, give or take, uh, depending on when we're evaluating it, more than, than workers uh, in other provinces. So, um, in fact, if you compare that, if you consider the fact that your average worker makes substantially more, uh, I think relatively, uh, we, we don't come out as well. But if you look at it at kind of a flat uh, compensation rate as opposed to a relative one, then we tend to make up pretty well com compared to other provinces. But yeah, again, which is reasonably fair in comparison. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Would you comment on recent reports of AHS hiring in brackets contract nurses? What does this mean for Alberta nurses and is the move related to the UCP's objective of privatization of healthcare? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. I thought about touching on that earlier, um, and uh, and and didn't because there's just so much. What do you what do you start with? But um, absolutely, um, HS has indicated to us that uh, they intend to uh, hire additional contract nurses in order to meet uh, the current uh, nursing shortages and to help address uh, some of the challenges. So you know, certainly we've mixed feelings about that. I mean, I've shared some of the stories um, and talked about the impact of, of the shortage and the crisis we have right now. Um, so certainly our members see huge value in having more people on the unit right now to provide that care and, and to ensure that high quality care is being provided and possibly even just allow them to get home every once in a while and spend some time with their family. However, the idea that those contract nurses could be making $20 an hour more um, than, than they are while working side by side for the same work is, is a pretty uh, big slap in the face as well. So uh, that's a huge part of our conversation uh, with AHS uh, as the employer uh, to talk about that's all well and good. Um, we want to deal with the short term, but long term, we desperately need to talk about recruitment and retention and what that looks like. And it's sure, it sure as heck not appropriate to still be contemplating wage back wage rollbacks in the uh, in the face of, of all of this. Oh, and there was, I guess, some references as to possible uh, intentions around privatization. Um, I mean, I obviously nobody's. Uh, it, it, it's not a big surprise. This government uh, is is a huge fan of privatization. We're seeing, uh, you know, privatization uh, right across uh, many services, from lab um, to uh, housekeeping to dietary um, uh, and beyond. Uh, we're seeing private surgical facilities, more and more private long-term care. Um, and, and I don't think, to be honest, uh, AHS is, is that opposed to that either. So um, I, I don't think this particular step, though, uh, is about that. Um, I do think uh, this step is, is legitimately about meeting uh, deficits uh, at this point, but it never should have come to this. The, the, the planning should have been done a long time ago. Uh, we never should have gotten to this point. And um, so that, that continues to be a huge frustration. Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. Question for clarification. Are the 0% brackets first three years and 1% bracket last two years inclusive or exclusive of simple cost of living increases, which are supposed to account of somewhat for inflation? Yeah, no, um, that's a great question. And thanks for asking that. Um, no, a zero is a zero. That's it. Um, no accommodation for any kind of cost of, of living increase. So uh, we have five previous years plus three years um, now is what they're proposing. So that would be a total of eight years in a row of zero percent uh increases uh, at all. Um, so obviously that means we're going backwards uh, in comparison to, to cost of living as things are getting more expensive. Uh, our nurses will have spent close to a decade uh, without an increase. And then if we extend that out the two years they're talking about, there'd be 1% in the two out years. 
So then we could be talking about 10 years um, with only 2% at the far end. So uh, a huge, a huge loss uh, for nurses, for sure. Our next question comes from Maureen Hawkins. Are contract nurses members of the Canadian Association of Nurses? If not, could they be used to strike, used as strike breakers if AHA nurses go on strike? So, so they, I mean, they have to be members of CARNA. I mean, there's, there's things they have to do in order to be able to, uh, to provide work, but they are being contracted out. So it is different, a different relationship with the employer. Uh, however, there are very direct, um, uh, agreements between uh, AHS and UNA um, that even if labor law wouldn't necessarily prohibit it, uh, our agreement would prohibit um, them using those workers. So we have essential services agreements in place, um, you know, between um, administrative staff who uh, are professional still. So, if, for example, there's many managers who are, are RNs, um, plus uh, provision of some of our staff uh, to ensure they're there to meet essential services. Um, essential services are still going to be uh, taken care of. Nurses would never leave Albertans out in the cold. Uh, even if we're on strike, if you have a heart attack or um, you know need to go to the hospital or have a baby, uh, those services are going to be absolutely provided and we'll make sure uh, that, the, that the people are there. So um, those agreements are all clear and in place and it would be uh, incredible violation of all agreements for, for them to utilize them uh, uh, to cross the picket line. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Great to have you back speaking at SACPA, Danielle. What are your thoughts on the current anti-vaxxer slash passport demonstrations in front of hospitals by abusive crowds? Who motivates them? Who? Um, <laughs> that's asking me to get inside their heads, uh, maybe a little bit, which I'm a little bit hesitant to do. Um, but what I can say is it's incredibly discouraging uh, for healthcare workers to see people outside uh, demonstrating, uh, sometimes violently, um, against uh, vaccinations, while inside they're desperately trying to save the lives of unvaccinated people who've who've ended up there uh, under their care. Um, so it's offensive. It's demoralizing. Um, it's 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 really an awful situation. Um, this spread. Uh, of misinformation um, that, that is happening and disinformation uh, is having a profound disturbing impact on, on our success in responding uh, to COVID. Um, I mean, I think there's many sources of that information, but um, I'm very, very disappointed in this government's inability to challenge and to take down that information because of their waffling uh, on that. And in fact, um, in many ways kind of uh, of support in it uh, in the background, definitely from some MLAs uh, uh, over the months. And I think uh, they have definitely contribute, contributed to the spread of that information by not suppressing it better uh, over the past couple of years. I'm gonna ask my own question if I may. Um, <laughs> I use my moderator privileges here. What has been with, with all the, um, um, all the, the staffing needs around also the vaccination clinics. How has that, and, and often those are doctors and nurses, I believe, how has that impacted to the staffing shortage and also the, the, um, the testing site services, the testing sites, the track and trace, although I'm not sure if track and trace is done by nurses, but certainly the testing of it is. How has that impacted the shortages in, in, in hospitals or in doctor offices around um, healthcare okay. providers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what it comes down to is we're not really having any net influx of new nurses. Um, so when there's a fixed number of nurses having to provide care, um, 
when there's a new service that becomes a higher priority, then we're shifting around resources. So it might mean it takes you longer to get your child immunized or, um, for for example, might be one of the things that happened. Um, certainly home care's had some, some challenges because of that movement uh, around as well. So, uh, you know, w- when you're talking about a fixed number, uh, you, you've got some give and take. If you're, you're pulling from Peter to pay Paul, then, you know, uh, then Peter's left behind in terms of not having services. So, so that's certainly what we're seeing. Um, and far more than, um, than, than testing and tracing, that's certainly taken um, a number of resources. Where that's become really urgent uh, right now is um, the demand of COVID in terms of both COVID units and in particular the demand uh, in ICU. Uh, and so because of that and the change in resources, that's where we're seeing um, uh, surgeries being um, uh, cancelled, which is unfortunate. And, and you know, just because it's not an emergency doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, there's certainly stories of people who were scheduled for brain surgery or for surgery for their cancer um, who are having those cancelled because of having to move people around. And then I alluded to some of the stories already um, of the fact that people are being moved into roles that they really don't feel um prepared uh, to actually meet because of their their actual skill set. So uh, it's a really difficult time in terms of moving those resources around and it can often mean um, quite honestly subpar care in different scenarios uh, for all of us as a result. Thank you. Uh, Our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. We have heard of nurses leaving the field. Where are these nurses going? Seeing this, what is the message for those who may want to enter the field as their future career? Yeah, no, that's that's a great um, question, Leona. Um, I think there's a couple of things that are happening. We're seeing people who are actually leaving nursing. They're either retiring early or they're choosing to go to another field. Um, I was talking to someone not that long ago and they said back in the client days, there was a huge swath of nurses that chose to become real estate agents. Like it was just, it was a lot less stress, right? But um, uh, I'm not necessarily hearing those kind of stories this time around, but um, but we are seeing them when, when they can't get a break, when they cannot leave, when they cannot, when they're crying out and saying, I'm burnt out and I'm overwhelmed and I need help and they are getting none, then sometimes they are leaving because they have no other choice. Uh, And that is tremendously uh, devastating to me. Um, And it's certainly um, an example of how a natural disaster, like a pandemic, um, can can cause a lot of of permanent damage. However, um, it could have been managed a lot better and much of this was was avoidable. Um, Besides leaving the profession, we also are seeing them just leave the province as well. Um, The number of nurses who I've seen say that they're moving to BC or they're moving to Ontario or whatever, either because of the incentives or because maybe they came to Alberta to make more money and they're like, I'd rather just go home, whatever it is. um, They're also leaving the province. So, I mean, in terms of people who are looking to become nurses, um, I, I do think that this is not a forever thing. I I do see hope and I do continue to love and be passionate about uh, the fact that I'm a nurse and I think the majority of nurses uh, do too. So it's an incredibly challenging time but I I don't think it's going to last forever and I hope people continue to see nursing uh, as a rewarding and viable career with so many opportunities um, to work as well. Now I realized and I that I had forgotten to follow up on one of the questions and it was someone had made reference to the vaccine passports as well. I think it was somewhat in, in regards to the, the resistance of them, but, um, but I do think that um, I did just want to comment on the fact that certainly uh, I don't think paying people $100 for, um, for a vaccine is really gonna have the kind of outcome. Certainly evidence uh, so far uh, would indicate that other jurisdictions who've done something like this have little to no uh, positive feedback on that, but we are seeing other jurisdictions have incredible um, uh, results uh, with the vaccine passport. So I do hope, I don't care if you call it a vaccine passport or what you want to call it, rebrand it, all you want government, but just bring in something that will provide that opportunity for those who've been vaccinated uh, to get out and that ongoing support for businesses who desperately need it. Okay, um, next question is from Carol K. 
Kimoyo. I'm hearing more and more about the nurses practitioners. Are they in UNA? Can you speak to their working conditions and responsibilities as compared to a typical frontline worker? Um, I, I can't speak a lot to it, mostly because they're not uh, in United Nurses of Alberta. And there, there's a long and involved history about that in which um, we, uh, many years ago, had applied to have them be part of UNA um, and the Labour Board um, said no. Um, there have been some recent uh, changes that would allow them to be um, unionized and, in fact, specifically gave them the ability to be unionized. So. Um, Nurse practitioners at this point in time are considering if they want to be unionized and if so, uh, with which union. So uh, it's possible they may be with UNA um, at some point uh, in the future. That is something we are actively working on with a group of nurse practitioners to see if we can make that happen. Um, but um, that that isn't something right now. Uh, I mean, really, you have to be an RN to, to be a nurse practitioner, uh, but it is an extended scope of practice um, with different um, skill set and different responsibilities and, and a different knowledge base. So. Um, I do hear a lot of concerns uh, about scheduling from them, about the fact um, that their pay is uh, appears to me to be quite inadequate for, for that additional responsibility and knowledge um, base and skill set that they have and additional education. But um, that's something that we'll work with them uh, on should we uh, eventually be representing them. Our next question comes from Beth Mundo. Do you believe or have data to show that the public advocacy helped change Kenny's offer to nurses? Oh, I mean, I don't know if we ever know why <laughs> um, somebody else does something else. Um, but I do, um, I do believe that um, they blinked for a reason. <laughs> I mean, um, they, uh, I think, again, were quite surprised by the fact that we got to the point of, of, of being fairly close to the ability to strike uh, legally, um, far faster than they thought. I, I think that plays into it. But I do think um, that they played that game of trying to convince Albertans that nurses make too much. And thank God, thanks to all of you uh, for not buying that um, and, uh, and pushing back and, and letting uh, this government know that in fact, nurses are valued. So, I mean, I think it's, it's the whole picture. It's the fact that they need us uh, and there's not enough of us. It's the fact that um, we're we're at a point where we could take job action, and it is very much, I think, thankfully, um, them seeing that Albertans are on our side as well. Our next question is from Leona Jacobs. Last night on the news, a nurse commented, "Fair, where we would get to a point of choosing who would be treated and get to live versus not." Yet with surgeries being postponed, in one case, a brain tumor, is prioritization not already the case? Yeah, um, thanks for that question, Leona. Um, you know, um, healthcare workers are in moral distress right now for good reason. And it's because we're not being supported to provide the kind of care that we feel we should be able to provide uh, for people. And, and that can be in a number of fronts. It could be that we don't feel we have the, the right skill set, but it could also mean that we're having to cancel uh, surgical appointments or um, uh, whatever other kind of, of, of treatments we're having to cancel right now uh, as a result of this. Um, so yes, Absolutely, decisions are being made right now to reallocate resources um, uh, to basically protect just the critically ill mostly uh, at this point um, and those who, who are less critically ill, even if they're seriously ill, are, are paying some of the, the consequences for that now and possibly long term uh, and into the future. But what we're really seeing right now is a number um, of healthcare workers being very explicit and clear to say that uh, it's going to go beyond that soon and we're going to be to a point where um, we're literally deciding who lives or dies in that moment. That when there is a critical care bed that is needed with um, uh, a respirator that's needed um, and there's not enough of them in terms of people, then do we have to choose who gets that bed? Uh, and and quite bluntly, I think it's fair to say that healthcare workers are terrified of that. We never want to be in that point. We want to be able to take care of everyone. And the um, 
the moral distress, the, the trauma that that is going to bring to our healthcare workers is beyond profound. And I pray that we don't get to that point, uh, even though it seems that, that we're far too close right now. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. As I understand it, many future nurses are unable to access nursing education with the huge cutbacks generally to post-secondary education. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, legitimately, it, it's a huge issue right across this country that uh, there's more people who want to be nurses than there are spots uh, in nursing schools. Um, so this isn't just about Alberta. I mean, this is this is a national conversation uh, and certainly an issue we brought up um, uh, to to the Minister of Health, uh, Patty Hadji, when she was still before pre-election when we had this conversation and she was uh, still in that position uh, about um, about this, about the health human resource crisis that we were in before COVID started. Uh, we are definitely in now, but will be after COVID is done uh, and how we address it and the fact that we need to have a multi-pronged strategy. And one of those is to address the fact that we collectively across this country need to increase the number of spaces uh, for those who are interested uh, in, in becoming a nurse, because there are certainly far more people who are capable uh, of being a nurse out there and interested in being a nurse um, than, there, than there are spots. And that's a huge issue uh, for, for all of us right now. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. The UCP states Alberta nurses are paid more than their provincial counterparts. I think you touched on that. Can you expand on other factors in their statement or analysis? I don't know. I, I feel like I, I did touch quite quite a bit on that. And it's, it's mostly, um, you know, uh, the fact that they compared us to other provinces. Of course, they they take out the territories because uh, the territories always makes more uh, than than we do, Northwest Territories and the Yukon. Um, because again, it's about recruiting and retaining uh, nurses to places that are more difficult to get nurses to. Um, and uh, and it, it's the perfect example uh, of that, is that supply and demand uh, often means uh, you have to pay more. So so they, they, they kept that part uh, fairly silent. but. Um, again, uh, it's the fact that the idea that somehow that public sector workers, they legitimately know that other Albertans make more money, but they think it is okay that public sector workers uh, would make less relatively uh, compared to that. And, and it's just, to me, um, a combination of them showing uh, their profound disrespect and devaluing of public sector workers uh, and the work that that we do um, uh, in in terms of that. But also, um, you know, who knows? Um, you know, I, I, I very much believe many of the decisions are about undermining the public health system so that it falls apart and private can come swooping in. Um, and uh, uh, certainly uh, uh, undermining the workforce by, by paying them not what they're worth um, would make it more attractive to work private as well. So, you know, I, I think there's there's a lot of pieces um, to that picture, but I think it's very disingenuous of them to to somehow uh, imply that, that nurses make too much um, compared to other provinces. But, you know, they, they've created this huge gap uh, in terms of revenue uh, in the province. Um, and make no mistake that they have deliberately and intentionally chosen to bring in less revenue into Alberta than any other jurisdiction in Canada. I mean, that that was a very intentional decision. And, and the fact is then that they uh, are bringing in less revenue by ensuring that corporations get to keep more revenue and then expecting public sector workers like nurses and teachers and others to literally pay for that, mm. uh, to take less money uh, in order uh, to to meet that revenue gap. So it's uh, it it is again very much a slap in the face and an indication of how little they they value the work that we do. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. No, sorry, Carol Camillo. I was also in a caring profession in the public service. We had many staff off on long-term medical leaves. Do you know the number of nurses? I, I actually don't know off the top of my head the, the number of nurses um, on medical leave. 
uh, right now. Um, I do know there are a number of them um, who just literally could not do it, whether it was physical, whether it was mental. Um, but I do know a lot of them who are working through it and pushing themselves uh, despite that and likely doing harm to themselves uh, by continuing to, to do the work because they're scared about what it means if they, they don't go to work. They're scared about what it means for their coworkers that they see as teammates and colleagues and they have a lot of respect and value in and they don't want to leave them uh, hanging uh, in terms of that. But they're also terrified about what it means. Um, I mean, they are community members. They're, they're committed to the place they live in. They're committed to the people they take care of and, and they don't want to leave them. So um, I think the number of people on leave uh, is exceeded by the number of people who should probably be on leave uh, and aren't right, now, aren't right now, unfortunately. Cliff Peterson uh, starts off his question with, you may not want to comment on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but what are your thoughts on Alberta's CMH, CMOH not providing COVID updates? Thank goodness Joe Fapont and other health professionals are. Well, you know, I do want to start by saying I think that Protect Our Province, Joe Vipond, um, that whole crew of incredible professionals who have just in a very grassroots way come together uh, to meet information voids in this province. Uh, they're brilliant. I'm so thankful for, for them. Um, they've been there for Albertans. Um, you know, they're getting the attention of the media who shared their information uh, with Albertans, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, I do think it continues to be a problem that our medical officer of health uh, isn't independent. And, and I think that's, that's at, at the root of a lot of what we've seen. Um, and uh, I do think um, there has been uh, a leadership vacuum from this government uh, in terms of what um, they've chosen to, to allow to be communicated uh, to, to Albertans, what they've chosen to communicate to Albertans. Um, you know, uh, just recently they, they went many many weeks uh, without communicating to us uh, in which I certainly felt abandoned. I don't know about you. Uh, and after popping their heads up, you know, they disappeared again for a couple of days, despite um, I, I certainly was devastated yesterday to find out that there was 18 deaths in, in 24 hours. So it's, um, I definitely think there's a leadership vacuum and I do uh, have profound concerns with the fact that the CM, uh, chief medical officer of health role is not independent. Yeah, no kidding. Um, Bridge City News. Uh, David Harrigan said that Minister to Toves mischaracterized what is happening at the bargaining table between AHS and the UNA. Why does the UNA say this was a misleading statement from the minister? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's an implication I, I think Minister Taves implied that that they, you know, in good faith, came to the table and and negotiated and and are looking to uh, uh, achieve some some really positive outcomes. When when that's not necessarily what we've seen um, to date, um, you know, the fact that there are these. Um, massive concerns uh, around recruitment uh, and retention uh, of nurses at this point in time. The idea that a solution um, would continue to entail rollbacks uh, is completely disingenuous. I mean, th that, that can't be the solution that we go forward with. That's not in anybody's uh, best interest. And, um, and so that continues to be, to be a huge problem for us. So, so we'll see what the mediator has to say. And we truly hope mediation uh, results uh, in bringing us much closer together than we are right now. Excellent, thank you. And that's it for our questions. We have some uh, uh, comments then from uh, Laurie Schultz. Danielle, thank you for your informative, albeit sobering presentation. Thank you for your work for all the nurses and, and, and all the nurses doing Alberta under such catastrophic pandemic and political circumstances. And Colleen Quintel, thank you for your service. Maureen Hawkins, thank you for all that you and the other nurses have done and all are doing for us. And then Knut Peterson, many thanks, Danielle. Your perspective is very much appreciated. And also on behalf of SACPA, Thank you so much uh, for joining us. But before we end today's session, I would like to ask you, do you have a take home message for our viewers today? <laughs> 
I know, and you told me to have this ready, and <laughs> I, uh, I don't know that I, I kind of pulled it all together in my head. I mean, I guess my, my, my take-home message would be um, that that nurses will continue to to be there for you uh, as much as we can, and and that we profoundly appreciate the support uh, that we've received from Albertans. Um, you know, there are the the protesters out there, and that is disheartening. But behind that are, are the many, many more people uh, who've reached out and expressed um, their support uh, and encouragement uh, to nurse to nurses. So, so thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your continued support. Um, you know, we've we've always been there uh, for you, uh, and we'll, we'll we will continue uh, to be there for you. And uh, um, please, um, other than that, please stay safe. Please wear a mask. Please uh, physically distance as much as you can. Um, uh, I, I think that's what nurses want from Albertans more than anything, is uh, it, for people to do everything they can to, to avoid COVID. Uh, we, we love the communities we live in, and we really don't want to see you uh, at our workplace as, as much as possible. So. Wonderful. Thank you. And for everybody tuning in, we hope you join us next week. Uh, navigating the fourth wave of, of COVID-19 and beyond with Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Um, that's tomorrow. That's next week, Thursday at our noon time. And uh, we look forward to seeing you then. And thank you everybody for tuning in.